If you don't know me, my name's Patrick Cummings. Uh, I'm one of the elder trainees, elder, what are we calling ourselves? Uh, candidates. candidates. Elder candidates, and uh, I'm going to be reading the passage this morning for Gib. So we're going to be in Acts 24 if you want to read along. We're just going to read the whole thing. Acts 24. And the word of the Lord says this, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoyed much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. And when the governor had nodded to him, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that everything laid down by the law and written... But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today." But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribunal, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Father God, as Gibson has prepared this message, I I pray that um, you just speak through him to our congregation this morning, that the words of this scripture do not fall flat, and that we will be encouraged as a body through the message he has prepared for us. I pray that your uh, spirit will just bring us much rejoicing this morning, and we lift up this time in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you, Pat. Well, this is Paul's third defense, and he's on trial, and it's in Caesarea, uh, just north um, west of Jerusalem. And <clears throat> it leads to this question what if the Apostle Paul lived in your guest room for two years? In 2335, we read that Paul was held by Felix in the Praetorium, uh, which is like a White House. It's where uh, the governor of a province would live and work, uh, all in the same building. Uh, this is the palace where the governor had ordered, Felix had ordered Paul to be held captive. What would you do if Paul lived in your house? If he uh, walked in your hallways and, and slept in your spare room and you had to do his laundry and you had the chance to eat with him anytime you wanted and, and, and maybe if he offered to babysit your kids so you could go out and have a date night. Um, it's a good question and an icebreaker type question that people often ask and that is, you know, if you could sit down for two hours with any person uh, from scripture or in history, who would you sit down and talk with? Um, of course, many of us might be tempted to say Jesus, and then you get into the reality that, oh, I can talk to him for two hours at any moment, and you might feel a little bit of conviction about that. But if it wasn't Jesus, maybe you'd say, I'd like to spend time with Moses, or, or maybe Elijah, or maybe King David, or Abraham, or Joseph, or, or maybe even Adam, or Noah. Many people might say Paul. Um, the events described in this chapter kind of take on a different light when you realize that for two or more years, Paul was just down the hall uh, from Felix in his um, compound in the praetorium there. And so you ask yourself, how did this affect Felix? What impact did this have on his life? What impact would it have on your life, on your understanding of the gospel, on your understanding of scripture, seeing his habits, watching his disciplines, learning from his mind. We're going to consider Felix uh, quite a bit in this message, but we're also going to look at two other perspectives. Uh, I want us to set the rest of the chapter up just by remembering um, God's perspective. First of all, what is he doing in Paul's life during this time? And then the second perspective might be, what about Paul's condition? And how does Paul, we're going to speculate a little bit on How does Paul feel about being in prison for two years? Uh, Maybe what that looks like for him. And then the third thing we're going to look at is Felix's life. Uh, The tragedy, really, of Felix's non-response to Paul and the gospel message. So that's three perspectives, God, Paul, and Felix. And so let's start with God's sovereignty. And just by way of reminder... The events and activity that we see of God in Paul's life is that he led him to Jerusalem. Paul was wrapping up his third missionary journey. He had, uh, he had uh, taken up an offering from all the churches where he had planted to relieve the suffering of the church in Judea. And so he, he came and he bore those gifts and he, he visited with the Jerusalem church elders and with James and he encouraged them and he told them all the things that God had done in his life and ministry through the the time in which he had traveled in his three missionary journeys, he brought this enormous financial gift that blessed and really relieved some of the poverty uh, from the church in Jerusalem. 
God used the Jerusalem church to encourage him and to give him wisdom about how he should approach his time in Jerusalem. And you'll remember he was only in Jerusalem for a few days in this purification vow that was very common for a Jew. If they were traveling throughout the Roman Empire and they returned to Jerusalem, they would go into the temple and they would announce to the priests this Jerusalem, I mean, this uh, purification vow that they were going to take. And so Paul did that, uh, paid for some other brothers to go through their Nazarite vow to have their head shaved. And, and while Paul was just kind of minding his business, it wasn't even a week, um, some Jews who were from Ephesus saw him on the temple grounds and they assumed that because they had seen him the week prior with Trophimus, um, not a Jew, they assumed that because he was with Trophimus in the uh, Jerusalem area that he had brought him into the temple. And so they stirred up this riot and, and yet God delivered Paul. They were about to beat him to death there in Jerusalem. And, and God used the Roman military to come in and uh, stop the riot and stop them from killing Paul right there in the city. And, and then Paul wanted to speak to the crowd. And so he had the opportunity to present the gospel. He told the, the Roman tribune, no, I'm not the assassin. I'm not the Egyptian assassin who led 4,000 other assassins into the wilderness. And he told him who he was. And he said, can I address the crowd? And so Paul addressed the crowd and presented the gospel. Uh, and then, of course, um, was taken into custody when things began to get violent again. And then the next day, the Jerusalem council came and, and, and Paul got punched in the mouth, you remember from a few weeks ago, and then he gave another defense before the council and it began to get violent again. And so Lysias uh, shuttled him after he learned about an assassination attempt where more than 40 of the uh, Pharisees had asked the elders, we're not going to eat and we're not going to drink until Paul is dead. So we want you to ask Lysias to bring him down and while he's on the way, he'll never make it. We'll, we'll kill him on the way. And a few weeks ago, uh, I preached on whatever happened to those guys, right? They, the 40 guys took this serious vow not to eat or drink until Paul was dead, and yet Paul was spared by God's life through his nephew intervening. In all these ways, we can see that God orchestrated these events that allowed Paul to be kept uh, completely secure. All these people who wanted Paul dead had no chance of killing him. Why? Because God had preserved him. You remember, even that night, Jesus came to Paul in the prison and he, he towered over him in Jerusalem and he told him, take courage, even though even as you've uh, testified about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify about me in Rome. And so Paul had this promise that he wasn't going to die in Jerusalem and that he wasn't going to die in Caesarea, that God was going to somehow miraculously get him to Rome so that he could testify about the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the emperor himself. So if we look at the activity of God weaving throughout the story, you can see that God is sovereignly working out his purposes for Paul in this process to get him to Rome. And he's going to testify about Jesus' resurrection before the emperor Nero. It's really an extraordinary story. We started with Acts in the Acts chapter 1, and there were 120 or so believers in an upper room in little Jerusalem in a little corner. And then now, by the end of Acts, the gospel will be proclaimed all over the Roman Empire, even to the emperor himself. And, and we're talking about in a period of 30 or so years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The point I'm trying to make here is that God is sovereign over Paul's life 
and he has not forgotten him. Even though Paul is locked in this prison for at least two years, God knows where he is. He hasn't forgotten him. He didn't misplace him. He didn't remember two years later, oh yeah, I was going to do something with Paul. What was that? Right? I was going to get him to Rome. No? He's not on a shelf. He's not in the closet. He's not in storage somewhere. God isn't done with Paul yet. A few years ago, I read this quote from John Piper. God is at work all around. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may only be aware of three of them. He said, not only may you only see a tiny fraction of what God is doing in your life, the part that you do see might make no sense to you at all. And then he goes on and he lists a dozen different um, examples in this blog post. He says, you may find yourself in prison and God may be advancing the gospel among the guards and making free brothers bold. You may find yourself with a painful thorn in your flesh and God may be making the power of Christ more beautiful in your weakness. You may find yourself with a dead sibling that Jesus could have healed and God may be preparing to show His glory as He did in John 11. You may find yourself sold into slavery, accused falsely of sexual abuse and forgotten in a prison cell and God may be preparing you to rule a nation as He did with Joseph in Genesis 37-50. through And the blog post continued on and on with other examples. But it's true historically, scripturally, that when God is doing something in our life, you have no idea what the outcome is. Especially now, all all you can see right now are the circumstances in front of you. And oftentimes the circumstances in front of you, if we're honest with each other, aren't exactly encouraging or appealing to us. Because it's one thing to understand this theoretically. God is sovereign. He's in control. But it's a whole other thing to walk through this experientially when you're the one being put in the position to have to rest in God when the boundary lines haven't fallen for you in pleasant places, as it seems for other people. Maybe you've even said those words to someone, and even as they came out of your mouth, they sounded kind of trite and cliche. Hey, God is sovereign, brother. Uh, God is in control. You know, everything's going to work out great. He's working in you to work out His purposes Maybe you've even told yourself that while you're in a trial. But I just want to testify to you that it's one thing for us to know that in our mind, and it's quite another thing for you to have to experience that when you're in a prison for two years, and no one's coming to your door, and, and, and no one's you used to walk in freedom like Paul had, and you used to be able to get on a ship and sail across and present the gospel and plant churches and make disciples. And all those things that Paul did, we see no evidence that he did anything in Caesarea. There are no books that are attributed to Paul during this two-year period. There's not a team of people that we know of that he lists by name. Whereas in the Roman imprisonment, he wrote the pastoral epistles, right? First and Second Timothy and Titus, and he wrote Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. He wrote all these great books, and even to the church at Philippi, he said, you were with me in my imprisonment, and you supported me. There's nothing like that for his two-year imprisonment in Caesarea. Just some Roman governor who summons him occasionally, hoping to get money from him. Which may lead us to believe our second perspective here about Paul's condition it may lead us to wonder what was Paul's mindset like how did he feel what was he going through during these 800 plus days 
being in custody. The only evidence that we see or the clues that we have are found in verse 23 of the passage that, that Pat read for us. In verse 23, it says that Felix gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. That is, he wasn't allowed to leave the palace grounds. Uh, there were assassins on the loose, by the way, so Paul wasn't able to venture outside of this Roman compound. And, and this is a Jewish person, Paul, uh, who you know, nationally was not always for Rome. But it also said that Felix said that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs, which was a common way they handled prison prisoners in, in Rome. That uh, if you had someone, they wouldn't provide food for you. It was up to your relatives to come and bring food and clothing. That's why in Paul, uh, in, the, in Timothy, he tells him, bring the, bring the cloak that I left in Troas, and, and don't forget the parchments and the scrolls. And he's, he's giving... Timothy, a laundry list of things that he needs. Wash my shirt, you know, do all these things and bring it to me when you, when you meet with me in prison. Paul has some liberty and, and he is able to have some friends come to him, but, but we don't have a lot of record of Paul's connections in Caesarea. It is speculated that Luke might have been there with him. We have some eyewitness details here later in the passage that Felix nods to Paul and that's recorded here. So Luke might have been right there with him. And many speculate that Luke wrote much of uh, the Gospel of Luke, or at least did the research, did the eyewitness um, interviews that went into the writing of the book of Luke while Paul was in Caesarea. We don't know that for sure. But what we do see from what we can find here is that, of course, different people respond to adversity and trials in different ways. When John the Baptist was locked up in prison, he sent a message to Jesus through his disciples and he said, hey, are you the Messiah or should we expect somebody else? And if you're reading into that text, it might sound something like, hey, I'm here in prison and if you're the Messiah, you could easily come and rescue me. So are you the one or not? And Jesus didn't rec- rescue him. Peter, under trial and duress, denied that he even knew Jesus. Then you think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who when he was in the middle of his trial and being stoned to death, opened up the heavens and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God and prayed for the forgiveness of those who were currently stoning him. And I mean, Stephen went out on top if there's a way to go through trials like that. But in Paul's case, we don't have a lot of indication in the text here, and it's not necessarily my role to speculate, other than that it seems that at any time Felix calls for him, he comes before Felix the governor, and he just faithfully preaches the gospel and preaches the word, and in all of his defenses, he, he's preaching the gospel as well. Paul knows that God's purpose is to get him to Rome to testify before the emperor. And so his imprisonment is endurable, if that's a word, I don't know. He is able to endure this trial. He would later write to the Philippians that, I know what it's like to be in plenty. I have lived that life before. But he also said, I know what it's like to be in want, to be in times when I don't have anything I need. And he said, I've learned the moio, is the Greek word, the secret of being content in any and every situation in which I'm placed. And you know the verse, you've seen it on a coffee cup or something like that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Paul's saying that maybe even during this two-year imprisonment in Caesarea, I I can do this 
Because it's Jesus Christ who dwells within me that gives me the strength to face the trial that I'm facing. In any of these circumstances, Paul also had a long history of God doing incredible things, right? Miraculous escapes from prison, both from Peter's life, but also from Paul and Silas when they were in Philippi. An earthquake shook the doors open and the chains came off and and the jailer came in and said, what must I do to be saved? Maybe Paul was thinking this Caesarean imprisonment and Felix would be similar to that, but there were no glorious conversions, no miraculous escapes. There's no indication that Paul wrote any letters. From all accounts, Paul is just tucked away and almost seem to be forgotten and quiet during this period. But what we do know is that when he's called upon by Felix, he's faithful to declare the whole gospel. Look at verses 24 through 27. It says that after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he often sent for him and he conversed with him. And that continued for about two years. If you've ever found your place in a, uh, yourself in a place like Paul was in, maybe a long trial, maybe a period of your life that you hoped would end, but it just seems to, keep um, lasting and stretching out longer. See, Paul had this promise that he would get to Rome, but it would be years before he got there. Just spoiler alert, if you haven't read the rest of Acts, two or three years from now, he's going to get on a ship, and that ship's going to take like a year to get there. Shipwreck, wintering somewhere. Then he gets off on an island in Malta after they swim to shore, and a snake bites him on the hand. and you know, All these crazy things will happen before he ever gets there. So when the promise seems slow, and when the trial seems long, what's helpful is to take a marathon approach, not a sprinter's approach. To temper your expectations about what you think God should do, and to make sure you set your sights on Jesus. In Hebrews 12, 1-2, we're told that since we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside all the weights and the sin that clings closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The encouragement is that when you feel like you're in a trial that is just never-ending, maybe a shadowy period when you feel like God has forgotten you and He doesn't know where you are, it's not trite to say rest in God's sovereignty, but it's also not trite for us to build each other up and to encourage each other and to say, listen, 
All of this trial is aimed to bring about this sort of faithfulness, right? That James 1, 2 through 4, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. God often brings these trials about in our lives, even these prolonged periods of trial, that it may, uh, in the refining process of silver, they boil it until all the junk rises to the top and they scrape the junk and they repeat the process until the refining is, is done so well that you can see your face in the refined silver. Charles always likes to tell me, yeah, there's nothing more to scrape, right? I've gone through the refining fire for so long that I don't think there's anything more to scrape. I don't know that I would be so bold as to say that I have nothing left to scrape. And I don't think Charles meant that. But but I think that in trials, God uses these long extended periods when we feel like God has forgotten about us to do not just a work in us, but also a work through us. You think about Paul faithfully presenting the gospel, articulating the words of Scripture to his captors, And that certainly was for God's purpose, the declaration of the gospel. I've heard so many times of people who have been in a hospital or have been uh, somehow in a trial that people around them are hearing the gospel. And they're people that they may not have naturally been able to reach out to, but God has sent them somewhere to share the gospel with someone that couldn't have taken place had it not been for this trial. And in Paul's situation... It's kind of bewildering, but it's for this guy, Felix. And so let's transition to this sort of third perspective about Felix. He was given into Felix's custody. Lysias in Jerusalem uh, fired off a quick letter, and he said, uh, Most excellent Felix, uh, and addressed him and told him about Paul and and told him why he was sending him to him. R.C. Sproul helps us understand this a little better. He says, In Roman society, there were clearly defined levels of social order. At the very top, the apex of the social order was the emperor himself. On the first tier under that were members of the Senate, and on the second tier, or the third tier under the emperor, were the what was called the equestrian knights. That equestrian order, second only to the Senate, and also the regional governors were given the honorific title, Most Excellent. So when Claudius Lysias sent Paul to Felix, he was sending him to somebody very high up in the Roman hierarchy. Felix was in an elite class of Roman society. But he didn't start out life this way. Sproul continues, Out of all the four most important historians of antiquity from this time, Suetonius, Tacitus, Josephus, and Luke the physician, all four of them wrote details about Felix. We are told that Felix was born into slavery but later was given his freedom either by Emperor Claudius's mother or, according to Tacitus, by Claudius himself. Both historians agree that Felix was born a slave and then elevated to the level of governor. His brother Pallas was also born into slavery, but he rose so high in the Roman hierarchy that he was put in charge of all the civil servants in Rome, much like holding a cabinet position in the United States government. Sproul continues, So both Felix and Pallas were very high up in the Roman hierarchy. Felix had three wives. His first wife was the granddaughter of Cleopatra and Antony. 
His third wife was Drusilla. By the way, it was like 20 years old and the daughter of a high priest in that family, the daughter of King Herod Agrippa. At the time of Paul, Felix, who had begun as a slave, married royalty, was surrounded by royalty, and held the honorific title of most excellent, which was the title of royalty. But, Tacitus continues, Felix was known for his brutal and ruthless quelling of insurrections in his territory. Anytime the Jews stood against the Romans, Felix wiped them out. Tacitus said that Felix had the power of a king, but the mind of a slave. And yet, Sproul points out, he went down in history, and one of the most important things that ever happened to him was this two-year encounter with the Apostle Paul. So Paul's going to give his third defense before this guy. In verse 1 through 8, a Greek rhetorician or an orator or a spokesperson named Tertullus, he comes and he presents the case before Felix. And listen to his case. Look back at verse 2. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you we enjoy so much peace, and since by your oversight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, which by the way was like a a rhetoric device that says, I'm not going to waste your time, and let me just get to the point. And the point is that he's trying to make... Um, we have found Paul to be a plague. He stirs up riots among the Jews throughout all the world, and he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining himself, you'll be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. It's interesting because Tortullus begins with these flattering words that are sort of designed to secure the goodwill of the governor. He says, we enjoy so much peace. Uh, But his remarks had very little to do with reality. And I'm talking about historically. Historically, Felix was a really bad guy. Uh, He he had, according to Tacitus, the least peaceful term of any Roman administrator up until this time. And he was hated by the Jews. And he was noted more for his bribe-taking than for his benevolence. Uh, Tertullus accused Paul of three crimes, stirring up riots, which would have been the biggest one for, uh, for Felix. All those riots that you hate, Felix, Paul's the guy who starts those. That's what his first accusation was. Um, his second accusation was being the ringleader of a Christian sect, and the third was for profaning the temple. But to Felix, the first charge would have been the most serious, amounting to a charge of sedition and threatening the Roman peace. Felix was brutal. He was not peaceful, and the Jewish leadership knew it. So I'm sure they had to grit their teeth when Tertullus said, isn't that right? And the Jews behind him, you know, in verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that these things were so. As a matter of fact, just in a few years from this point, Felix would be fired as governor, and, and the emperor would call him back to Rome for being too brutal and for mishandling these Judean riots. And who was the emperor who fired him from being the governor? Uh, It was a guy named Nero. And I don't know if you know anything about Nero, but if um, Felix is too brutal for Nero, then Felix was a brutal guy. 
And so Tertullus starts out and saying, oh, we're, we're so grateful for the peace that you bring us and all the wonderful things you're doing and all the reforms. I don't think Felix bought it at all. I think Felix could see right through it. Felix knew that they just really wanted Paul dead and they were willing to say anything. Maybe even he had a smile as they were sort of lying through their teeth about Paul. But then now it's Paul's time to speak. In verse 10, when the governor nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, not in a flattering way. Paul just says, I know that for many years you've been a judge over these nations. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of the minimum he can say about him. I, you, you've been a judge here, right, for a little while. I know that. Um, and before you, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And when they found me, they didn't find me disputing with anyone. I wasn't stirring up a crowd. I wasn't stirring up a crowd in the temple. I wasn't going around to all the synagogues and stirring up riots, uh, not even in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But I do confess this to you, that according to the way, that is according to the way of the followers of Jesus Christ, they call it a sect, but according to Jesus, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And he said, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And after several years, we've already heard that, he comes to Jerusalem to present offerings. And when I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple with no crowds and no tumult. And then he points out the legal angle that he's getting to. But the ones who accused me of this riot, the Jews from Asia, by the way, where are they? Are they in the room somewhere? Oh, they're not even here to um, accuse me. And they should be here before you to make this accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing I said, it's for the hope of the resurrection that I stand before you today. Listen, Paul's defense can be summarized in three ways. It was factual, It was honest and sincere, and it was a bit opportunistic in regard to the gospel, right? It was factual. He presented the facts. Here I was, it's been less than 12 days, Trophimus and the brothers and the purification vow. You can verify all the facts about me. All the facts were on Paul's side. He didn't have to lie. He didn't have to exaggerate. He didn't have to flatter. He was just able to say, these are the facts and you are, it's easily verifiable. Send out a detective, send out an investigator, even Lysias, when he comes here tomorrow, he'll be able to verify all the things that I'm telling you. Paul stuck to the facts and the facts were good because he was not guilty. He was innocent. By the way, if you're ever on trial, um, hopefully as a Christ follower, the facts will be on your side, right? Hopefully you're able just to appeal to the fact that you live uh, a life free in conscience and that you have committed no wrongdoing. Paul, Paul's defense was airtight because he, he was able to be factual. The second thing I see in his testimony and his defense is that he was honest. Unlike Tertullus, he didn't have to use any flattery. He didn't plead. He didn't beg. He didn't bribe. He didn't do anything other than be honest. He even confessed. Now, I will confess to you that I I am a follower of the way, and, and I do believe in Jesus, and I do believe in the resurrection. Paul was very honest in his testimony. And then the third thing, I love that he's always opportunistic with the gospel. He always tried to find a way to lead the the 
conversation away from him and toward the resurrection of Jesus. He was able to boil down his entire defense to this one idea that I'm on trial because Jesus Christ was resurrected. That's the only reason why I'm here today. Jesus uh, arrested me on the way to Damascus, and because of his resurrection, I met a risen Jesus. And because of that resurrection, Jesus set me on this course that has led me to this place here today. He even wrote to the Corinthians that without the resurrection of Jesus, we are of all men the most to be pitied. Paul talks about the resurrection a lot in in his defenses, in these five defenses. And you can see that the resurrection of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is alive, was at the very center of Paul's life. It was the burning center. If you peel away all the layers, at the very middle was his conviction and his firm belief that Jesus is alive today. And his passion to follow a risen Jesus was there. And so he stands as a witness to the risen Jesus. And he's going to weave that into every testimony. We don't have the details when he gets to Rome and he presents his case before the emperor. But, but if, if his first five defenses of, the, of his uh, life on trial are any um, indication, once he gets to the emperor, he's going to talk about what? The resurrection of Jesus. That's why I'm on trial before you today. I think verse 22 about Felix is interesting. Uh, verse 22, after Felix hears his whole defense from both sides, it says that he, Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. You see, Felix was familiar with the gospel. He was familiar with Jesus. If you, if you have a timeline, uh, Jesus was born in um, like 4 B.C. Um, the calendar got shifted you know, um, you'd think he was born in 0 B.C., but, but long after they thought it was 0 B.C., they, this rabbit trail, not important, but Jesus would have been resurrected in 30. And so here's Paul in 57 or 60, somewhere in that timeline. This is 30 years later that Paul is standing before Felix, and Felix uh, already has a rather accurate knowledge of, of the church and of Jesus and the way. He's no stranger to the gospel. Um, he had an accurate knowledge of Christianity, enough so that he was favorable toward Paul, even though it would have been sort of politically expedient for him to just hand Paul over. It would have benefited him in the area that he ruled as governor just to give Paul over to him, but he didn't. What can we say about Felix? I think it's a tragedy the way we can summarize this chapter in his life. This is the end of Felix. I'll probably never feature him or say his name as many times as I have in this sermon. This is the end. But but saying this, I, I would put him in the category of someone like a Judas Iscariot, where it, it boggles the mind as to how someone could interact with Jesus so closely, so intimately, day in and day out, listening to him speak, hearing him pray, watching him eat, watching him walk, watching him travel, watching him teach, watching him do miracles. Judas had this front row seat into Jesus's life. And and even that was not enough for, for him to not sell Jesus out. Here we have Felix. It just reminds me of Judas. He, he has the apostle Paul living in his house for two years. He often calls him and converses with him. He had an accurate knowledge of the way. 
we read that Paul often spoke with him and he would reason with him about righteousness. That is the law of God and how God's standard of righteousness is so far above ours and that we can't reach it. And then he would talk to Felix about self-control and maybe the lack of it. In, in Felix's case, you've had multiple wives, you married a teenager. I mean, you know, this self-control might be an issue that you need to work on. And then he would reason with him about the coming judgment of God, that one day you'll stand before God and, and he will judge you based on the standard of righteousness and your lack of self-control. And, and Felix was alarmed by this and said, just, just go away. Just go away. I don't want to hear it. Maybe later, if I have time, I'll call for you. In the end, Felix didn't take the gospel seriously. His response was to continually put it off. In the end, Felix's only hope from Paul was that he would give him some money, right? The only reason he kept bringing him up was maybe he'll give me some cash. This man, born a slave, a member of elite royalty, did not benefit personally from having spent two years with the Apostle Paul. And he could have had such a cool story, by the way. I mean, you can hear the movie voiceover guy, right? Born a slave, rose to royalty, enjoying all that the world has to offer. He had money, he had a career, he had a marriage. Realized it wasn't enough, and this prisoner, this lowly prisoner in chains, shares the gospel, and his life is ever, you know, forever changed. This kind of ultimate slave to freedom story. That could have been a story, but it wasn't. And I think today, for us, we remember him as a fool who heard the gospel, rejected it, hardened his heart toward it, and his only hope was that Paul would give him some money. And I find that remarkable. It reminds me of the... uh, of this truth. Our hearts can become so hardened to truth that it will ignore what matters the most for that which matters the least. Jesus said that the gospel is like a treasure that you find in a field and, and in your joy you go sell everything else to gain that treasure. To the rich young ruler, Jesus commanded him, go and sell everything. I can see that this idol of Money is valuable to you. And and to rid you of that, go and sell everything so that you may have me and come follow me. And the the guy goes away sad. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, Our Lord finds that our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offering of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased with that which is not should not give us any pleasure. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary in Ecuador, he wrote in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Jesus simply said it this way, recorded in Mark 8, 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Felix will go down in history, as far as we know, as the fool who forfeited everything, had Paul in his house and never heeded the, the gospel message. So my hope for us today is that we can learn from Felix's foolishness. On one level, that that if you're a believer, that, that your life would not be spent chasing things that don't 
frankly matter. Uh, I, I do funerals as part of my job. And part of my job in doing funerals is saying things about a person at their memorial service, obviously. And, and, and rarely, but occasionally for a believer, um, I'll find people um, not wishing that they had met, spent more time in their office or not wishing that they had made more money or more time on vacation or not doing all these things that in the end won't really matter. I find them wishing that they had done more with their life kingdom-centered. So if you're a believer, this may be a great reminder for you from Felix that, that not to give your life to things that don't matter, but to give your life for the kingdom, to, to, to make your life as though it were an offering, a burnt offering uh, uh, that you present before the Lord and say, use me in any way that you want to. Just a few weeks ago, I was sharing the gospel with somebody and, and I said, you know, giving your life to Christ Many times people have this idea that it's, it's, it's like a contract and we tell the Lord, uh, you know, Jesus, I will give my life to you if you give me a good marriage and if you give me a good financial situation, you give me good kids and you give me good health. And, and if, if you'll give me these things, then I'll sign my name at the bottom line and I'll give my life to you. I said, that's how a lot of people approach Christianity. And when things don't go that way, when things don't go the way they hoped it would, according to their contract, they abandon the faith because they started the faith with this expectation that Jesus is just there to give me a great life. I said, responding to Jesus and giving your life to him, yielding your life to him, surrendering your life to him, is more like taking that contract and saying, I will follow you and then signing your name at the bottom. And allowing him to fill in the details of what your life will become. You see, you live your life in such a way as that, not chasing after things that don't matter, that in the end won't even really matter to you. You can learn from Felix by not chasing that which does not satisfy. Paul wrote to Timothy that it is for the love of money is the source of all these evil things. And for greed, many people give away their faith. But if you're not a believer... You can learn from Felix's foolishness. Maybe you've not yet given your life to Christ. Um, the message for you here is not to spend your whole life chasing after that which will never satisfy your soul. Jesus offers you life now and life eternally. And it's the life that he dictates, which is the difficult part of living the life by faith. You told me growing up and living where we used to live that one day we would be in this area, I would, this is the, the farthest place in my mind that I would ever live. It's like you thinking, being in Mongolia and saying, oh, I didn't know I'd been up in Mongolia, right? This was, in our little zone, Philadelphia was, I'd never even been to the East Coast. But just allowing God to dictate the terms of where you go and His calling on your life and His leadership of bringing you places, that life of faith becomes difficult, and this isn't suffering. I mean, Philadelphia's bad, but it's not that bad, right? I mean, I'm not suffering for anything. I mean, there are believers in the Middle East and, and otherwise that uh, face greater challenges than, than we do. But this life of faith Jesus offers is not this life externally with all these incredible things. It's this peace that can never be removed. It's this joy in trials. It is this contentment when you don't have enough. It is a deep love and the ability to extend grace to people who just frankly don't deserve it and to love the unlovable and to, to suffer well 
All of these are really the miracles of Christianity, of following Jesus. And this life of faith, I would encourage you, if you've not yet given your life to Christ, is that that is the treasure that is worth selling everything. It's this pearl of great price, this buried treasure that you sell everything and and buy the field that has it. So my encouragement to all of us today is that we wouldn't harden our heart to the message of the gospel. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John 5, 39-40, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but the Scriptures bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. I think Felix was like that. He knew the Scriptures, he knew the Gospel, he knew Paul, and yet he refused to yield to Jesus. May we not be like Felix, and I think that's the last time I'll ever say his name. Lord Jesus, thank you for our time together today in the Scripture. Thank you for your word that, uh, that even this particular section of Acts that uh, may seem like it gets kind of bogged down in legal trials and, and lacks the excitement of the explosive growth of the church, yet we can still benefit from understanding how Paul responded to an extended and difficult trial in spite of your promise that was maybe for him seemed slow in coming. My prayer today is that you would give us endurance and trial, patience and affliction, that you would do a work of gospel proclamation through us in the midst of those trials, that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to set our gaze on you, on that which really matters. And help us not to be like Felix, who uh, traded the gospel, and hopes for more money. Whatever our idol of our heart might be, whether it's a marriage or a career or a relationship or a status, help us not to give that which we cannot keep for an exchange for that which lasts forever. We thank you for your eternal salvation, and we thank you, Jesus, that you offer it to us today. May we receive the life that you offer. In Jesus' name, amen.